The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hitchhiking in the 1960s and 70s was a common mode of transportation, one that allowed you to meet new people, take new routes, and get out of town for a while. In beach towns up and down the coast of Florida, hitchhikers constantly lined the roads, looking for a way to make it to the beach. In a small Florida suburb, two teenage girls, eager to explore the world outside of their hometown, decided to place their trust in a man who was offering them a free ride to anywhere. Unfortunately for the two girls, they would never reach their intended destination, and their families would never see them alive again. This is Jamie. Welcome to another episode of Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Georgia Jessup and Susan Place. takes us to St. Lucie County, Florida, most commonly recognized for its beaches. Many visitors to the Florida coast pass by completely unaware of the marshes, swamps, and jungle-like forests that are settled off the beachfront. Between the oceanfront and the inner cities on the beach sides of Florida lay marshes filled with mangrove trees, swampy waters, and difficult terrain. At the time the events of this case took place, much of the land in the area was still undeveloped, making it nearly impossible to navigate unless you grew up in the area. Unseen dangers lurked under every exposed mangrove root. Though residents and tourists alike were aware of the dangers that the beautiful Floridian nature presented, they didn't expect that a dangerous predator existed among them, and his identity would come as a shock to everyone. In April of 1973, two men were scouring the ground of Florida's beaches and marshes near Blind Creek Beach on Hutchinson Island, close to Fort Pierce. The pair were looking for aluminum cans they could recycle to make a few bucks. They would end up stumbling upon a gruesome sight. In what appeared to be a shallow grave, the men discovered human bones. Immediately, they contacted authorities and reported their findings. When police arrived, the badly decomposed body was in the process of being uncovered. When another grisly discovery was made, a second body was found. Separated into many pieces, bones from both bodies were scattered all throughout the shallow grave that stretched over 100 feet. Clothing, assumed to be connected to the remains, was also found strewn across the area. Immediately, authorities began efforts to identify the two bodies. Jawbone fragments were taken in to be examined, and soon, a match was found. They were identified as belonging to two young women. Eventually, authorities were able to connect the bones to a missing persons case 
in which two young girls disappeared and were never heard from again. Their names were Georgia Jessup and Susan Place. Georgia Jessup was 17 years old when she went missing with her best friend, Susan Place, who was 16 years old. The girls, both from Broward County, were known to be lively and free-spirited. Their mothers recalled feeling nervous every time their daughters left the house, unsure of when they'd return home. Both girls had a history of leaving home to explore areas away from home without giving their mothers any notice. About a year before her disappearance, Susan ran away with two boys and hitchhiked all the way to Rochester, New York, and back. She was reportedly gone for just over nine days. Her mother recalled that Susan would experiment with drugs while she was away. Georgia also had a history of running away. Only a week before disappearing, Georgia and Susan ran away together. Their mothers reported them missing, and they were quickly found in Palm Beach, Florida, and forced to return home. Though the girls frequently ran away, their mothers reported that they had a perfectly fine home life. Despite this, the girls dreamt of adventure and exploration, something they could not experience in the suburbs of Florida. Georgia and Susan were full of life and curiosity and determined to experience everything they could, even if it meant putting themselves in dangerous situations. On the day they were last seen, Georgia and Susan got into a car with a man they barely knew, with the promise of driving out to Colorado. Unfortunately, this was the last time they were ever seen alive again. Due to Florida's extreme temperatures and humidity, along with the abundance of wildlife, bodies can begin decomposing much faster than in other areas. During the heat of the summer, it can take as little as 24 to 48 hours for a body to be mostly decomposed. Due to the time of year and the level of decomposition, it was determined that the bodies had been buried anywhere from three to six months. Despite the extreme decomposition, there was still evidence left behind that told a story regarding how Georgia and Susan were killed. Remnants of arm bones were bound with rags, suggesting that the girls had been bound by their killer. Other bones showed evidence of knife wounds. One of the most unusual pieces of evidence collected at the burial site was the appearance of rope marks left behind on tree branches. The rope marks were thick and in two distinct places, leading investigators to believe that the two women were bound and hung from the nearby trees while their assailant tortured them with his hunting knife. After identifying the bodies of the two young women, Investigators began questioning the girls' parents as to their activities in the days leading up to them going missing. Georgia's mother recalled, On the day they were last seen, the two girls were picked up by a young man, presumably in his late 20s, who went by the name Jerry Shepard. Lucille, Georgia's mother, remembered being wary of her daughter driving off with a strange man, but apparently, Shepard reassured her saying that he was only driving the two girls at their own request. He promised he would make sure they got to their destination safely. Lucille regrets to this day allowing her daughter and her friend to ride away in the man's car. According to Lucille, 
after the two girls didn't make contact with them for four days, she attempted to report them missing. Because the girls both had a history of running away, the report was not taken seriously. Little effort was made to search for the missing girls, presumably because it looked as though they had simply run away again or just skipped town as they had done before. Determined to find her daughter, Lucille began investigating on her own months before the bodies of the two girls were found. Lucille told investigators that she had gone through Georgia's belongings, trying to find out if she could learn more about who Jerry Shepard was and where they were planning on going. In Georgia's possession, Lucille found a letter that was addressed to Shepard, but it had been returned to the sender. This at least gave Lucille a starting point. Without notifying officers, Lucille and Susan's mother drove over 80 miles to the address that was listed on the letter found in Georgia's bedroom. There, they met with the apartment manager and explained their story. They begged the manager to let them know if anyone named Jerry Shepard had lived at that address in the previous months. The manager responded that he had never met a Jerry Shepard from that address, but, he said, there was a man who lived in that apartment named Gerard John Schaefer. The two mothers could not have been prepared for the additional information the apartment manager was about to deliver. He told them that the reason Gerard Schaefer no longer lived in the apartment was because he was in jail for the abduction and torture of two young women. Some of the fascination with true crime content is trying to put clues together in order to solve the crime, sort of like a puzzle. When I need a break from true crime, I play Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a really fun puzzle game that challenges my brain and provides a welcome distraction when I need it. In the game, you can collect fun characters like Brittle, Howie, and Quincy. My teenager is currently stuck on level 40 and trying to figure out the best strategy to advance. I love that she actually has to use her brain to advance in the game, and she's not just staring blankly into a screen. I can see why there are already 100 million downloads. Once you start the game, you're not going to want to stop. Don't miss out on this craze. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Content creators, I'm sure you'd be happy to hear that there is a tool that could make your life so much easier. With Issue, you can make beautiful content easier. Issue is a one-stop shop platform that allows you to create optimized content for your website or social media, including Instagram stories. Issue is also a great tool when making content for brochures and magazines. It's a must-have tool for marketers, designers, educators, podcasters, or anyone who wants to make gorgeous content. It's so easy. Just upload your PDFs and files and let Issue turn your content vision into a reality. Best of all, it's free to get started with Issue. Go to issue.info slash murderish to sign up for your free account. That's issuu.info slash murderish 
to sign up and let them know you heard about it from our show. Remember, that's .info, not .com. Go to issue.info slash murderish to set up your free account today. Because of the information uncovered by Georgia and Susan's mothers, law enforcement connected Gerard Schaefer to the disappearance of their two girls. Unfortunately, this information did not become relevant until the bodies of their daughters were discovered months later. It appeared to investigators that their prime suspect was already behind bars, convicted of a similar crime. The one major difference was that the victims in that brutal crime survived. Gerard Schaefer was born in Wisconsin to parents Gerard and Doris Schaefer. He was the oldest of three children, and he grew up in a strictly Catholic home. Schaefer's family moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where Gerard attended Marist Academy. In 1960, his family once again moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Throughout his childhood, Gerard held the belief that his father favored his sister, and this caused issues with many of his familial relationships. He later admitted that as a child, he would steal women's underwear, spy on the girls in his neighborhood, and he even admitted to killing small animals. He also recalled cross-dressing as a child, though he defended this action by saying he was trying to avoid being drafted into the Vietnam War. The most disturbing aspects of his childhood, however, revolve around sexual fantasies that he began having at a very young age. He recalled one instance where he dressed up as a woman, tied himself to a tree, and began to harm himself. This, according to Schaefer, was sexually exciting to him, and it was at this time that he became intrigued with violent sexual fantasies. These fantasies led him to becoming a peeping Tom and imagining himself harming the girls with whom he interacted. Unfortunately, these fantasies were not enough to satisfy Schaefer. He needed to act them out in order to gain the perverse satisfaction he craved. In 1964, Schaefer graduated from St. Thomas Aquinas High School, and then he moved on to attend college at Florida Atlantic University. There, he met and married his first wife, Martha Fogg, in 1968. Soon after, Schaefer began teaching at Plantation High School, although that career did not last long. There are different reports as to what caused Schaefer to lose his job. However, the most cited reason was inappropriate behavior, such as taking the entire class period to lecture on the different morals and beliefs that Schaefer held using none of the class time to teach his prepared materials. After being fired from teaching, Schaefer attempted to join the Catholic priesthood. However, he was immediately turned down. It is reported that Schaefer was told that he was not a strong enough believer to become a priest. After this second rejection, Schaefer turned his sights on law enforcement with the goal of becoming a police officer. In 1970, Martha Fogg filed for divorce, citing extreme violence and abuse. The divorce against Schaefer was granted without complication. In 1971, Schaefer graduated from the police academy and became a patrolman at the age of 25. Though he was able to find a job, it is reported that multiple departments turned him down for employment based on numerous psychological evaluations that returned questionable findings. 
Finally, Wilton Manor's police department, a small unit in Broward County, hired Schaefer as a deputy. Soon after being hired, Schaefer proved to be of great assistance in a drug bust and earned credit within the department. However, it was quickly disregarded when he was caught looking up women's criminal profiles in the police department's data systems to find their phone numbers and ask them out on dates. After this was discovered, Schaefer was fired from his position. He maintained that he was being framed and that the people he helped bring down in the drug bust were getting their revenge on him. Later in 1971, Schaefer married his second wife, Teresa Dean. Soon after, he was hired by another police department in Martin County, this time as a deputy sheriff. It's been reported that Schaefer provided a letter of recommendation from his previous employer, however, that document was later proven to be forged. Schaefer reportedly fit in very well at the new department and was quickly becoming a trusted member of the team. Schaefer's boss recalled seeing him as a typical, young, straight-laced police officer and was impressed by his demeanor. That would all change, however, when the sheriff at the time, Robert Crowder, got a call one evening from Schaefer, admitting wrongdoing. When Crowder answered the call, Schaefer simply admitted that he had done something foolish. When probed for more information, Schaefer recounted his actions during the day. On the morning of July 21st of 1972, Schaefer was patrolling the streets in his cruiser when he noticed two young women attempting to hitchhike on the side of the road. He told the sheriff that at this point, he felt concerned for the women and decided they needed to learn the dangers of hitchhiking. To most effectively get his point across, Schaefer said that he offered to drive them to the beach, their intended destination. He remembered telling the girls that he was a police officer in plain clothes for the day, which made the girls unafraid of getting into the car with him. Schaefer told the sheriff that instead of taking the girls to the beach as he had promised, he instead took them the opposite direction toward the marshes. When they arrived at a secluded spot, Schaefer told the girls to get out of the car. He then tied their hands behind their backs and began threatening to kill them or sell them into prostitution. The girls, understandably upset and terrified, did as he said, and then began marching through the marshes. Schaefer explained that he tied the girls to trees at some point, but he had to leave them when he got a call on his police radio. Still wanting to make sure his lesson got across to the two girls, Schaefer told Crowder that he decided to leave the girls there while responding to the call and that he was planning on coming back to let them go and remind them once again of the dangers of hitchhiking. However, when Schaefer returned back to the place where he left the two women tied to the trees, they were nowhere to be found. This was the point at which Schaefer called the sheriff to report his own actions in an attempt to explain what he had done. The sheriff ordered him to return to the police station so they could speak further about the events of the day. Meanwhile, as Crowder was waiting for Schaefer to return to the station, two women, obviously upset and terrified, stumbled into the station begging for assistance. The story they told as to what they experienced that day was far more gruesome than the story Schaefer had given. 
The girls, Nancy Trotter and Paula Sue Wells, told officers that they had been abducted while trying to get a ride to the beach. They explained that they would be safe riding with a police officer. When he began getting aggressive with them, they became concerned. The man drove them to a forested, swampy area, proceeded to tie them up, and walk them into the trees. The man then put nooses around both of their necks and tied the other end of the rope around tall branches. The girls had to balance on the exposed mangrove roots to keep the noose from strangling them. They recalled that had they slipped off the root, they would be hanging by their necks from the tree. Nancy and Paula said the man began telling them that he was going to sell them into prostitution. He then said that he was going to kill them. Suddenly, however, the man received a call through his police radio and he told them he had to go. He promised them he would return and told the girls that he would kill only one of them, but they had to decide who it would be. The man then left while the girls were still tied up with nooses around their necks, balancing themselves in order to avoid hanging. Nancy and Paula told authorities they were able to get their hands out of the rope, and then they removed the nooses. As soon as they were free, they ran as fast as they could out of the forest. They went to the nearest police station, which happened to be the very station at which their attacker was working. Sheriff Crowder realized at this point how obviously disturbed Schaefer was. When Schaefer arrived at the police station to talk to the sheriff, he was immediately stripped of his badge and gun and was arrested on charges of false imprisonment and assault. He quickly posted bail and was released as he awaited his trial. During this time, Schaefer was offered a plea bargain, which he accepted. Because of this, he was able to plead guilty to only one count of aggravated assault. Shockingly, he was sentenced to only one year in prison after abducting and torturing two women. Schaefer, at the time, was still married to his second wife, Teresa Dean. He asked the court if he could be allowed to begin his sentence in January to allow him time to move his wife in with his mother and take care of some business before serving his time. In another surprising decision, the judge granted Schaefer this time, and the convicted man walked out of the courthouse with six months of freedom ahead of him. These six months would lead to numerous unspeakable crimes committed against many unsuspecting young women. As ordered, Schaefer reported to the courthouse in January of 1973 to begin serving his sentence. He would serve four out of his 12 months before being confronted with an accusation of being involved in another brutal crime. Most adults, including my husband, report they are lacking the amount of sleep they need. My husband was so excited to try Psalm Sleep, a berry-flavored drink that helps him fall asleep fast and stay asleep. Psalm Sleep is a drug-free, non-habit-forming sleep aid that comes in a small can. Drink it 30 minutes before you hit the hay and enjoy a great night's sleep and wake up with no grogginess. They have original and zero-sugar options that are vegan, non-GMO, dairy, and gluten-free. My husband has been drinking Psalm Sleep for a few weeks now, and he cannot say enough good things about it. It's been a game-changer for him, 
as he feels so much more productive during the day after getting a full night of rest. If you are one of the millions of adults having problems sleeping, you should try Psalm Sleep right now. Psalm Sleep is giving our listeners 15% off by using code MURDERISH at checkout. Just go to getsom.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-M.com. Getsom.com and use our code MURDERISH at checkout for 15% off your order. I've been using Sunbasket to help me get out of my food funk. With Sunbasket, I eat delicious, healthy meals that are fresh and ready in no time. Each week, meals are delivered with organic produce, sustainable seafood, and meats that are free of antibiotics, hormones, and steroids because yuck. Seriously, take some stress off your plate, pun intended, and let Sunbasket's award-winning chefs deliver meals like cauliflower macaroni and cheese and more. The best part for me is that Sunbasket meals are ready to eat in as little as six minutes. These meals are fresh and ready to eat quickly, and there's no mess to clean up afterward. There are options like gluten-free, paleo, and more. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com murderish and enter promo code murderish at checkout. That's sunbasket.com murderish and enter promo code murderish at checkout. sunbasket.com murderish and enter promo code murderish. The similarities between the murder of Georgia Jessup and Susan Place and the abduction of Nancy Trotter and Paula Sue Wells led investigators to focus on Schaefer as their primary suspect in the murders. Though already in prison at the time that Georgia and Susan's remains were found, Schaefer was still free at the time of their abduction. With their suspect already behind bars and their investigation uncovering a disturbing amount of evidence against Schaefer, Authorities moved to charge him with two counts of murder in the first degree. There was enough evidence at the crime scene that authorities believed painted a fairly straightforward picture of what happened the night that Georgia and Susan were murdered. Gerard Schaefer's trial began on September 27, 1973, and was presided over by Judge C. Pfeiffer Trowbridge. The defense was led by public defender Elton H. Schwartz with state attorney Robert Stone trying the case against Schaefer, who faced two consecutive life sentences if convicted of both first-degree murder counts. Florida, at the time, did not allow for capital punishment. Schaefer pleaded not guilty to the charges. Prior to the trial officially beginning, defense attorney Schwartz demanded that his client be given psychological evaluations as he was unsure that Schaefer was mentally able to stand trial. The court agreed to have the defendant undergo a psychological evaluation before continuing with the case. Afterward, it was determined that Schaefer was in fact competent to stand trial, and no further evaluation of his mental state would be necessary. The trial then began in an official capacity. Before and throughout the trial, Schaefer maintained that he was innocent. Anytime he was questioned about the crimes, he was firm in the fact that he was in no way connected to the murders. At the onset of trial, the state recounted for the jury what they believed happened the day that Georgia Jessup and Susan Place disappeared. The majority of their timeline was reconstructed through evidence and Schaefer's previous behavior. 
The prosecution also used items found during their investigation to help outline what would be Georgia and Susan's last day alive. Based on the testimony of Georgia's mother, the two girls got into the car of who they believed to be a man named John Shepard. Schaefer, who allegedly introduced himself to the girls as Shepard, told them that he would drive them all the way to Colorado, where they planned to camp and explore. The girls, happy to have a ride, agreed and planned their trip for the next day. According to the prosecution, Shepard, who was later determined to be Schaefer, arrived at Georgia's house and picked up the two girls. While there, he met Georgia's mother. Then, he, along with Georgia and Susan, began driving toward what the girls thought was Colorado. At some point, Schaefer veered off of their route and began heading toward Blind Creek Beach, a secluded area on Hutchinson Island, close to Fort Pierce. This was an area that he knew would be empty of tourists and a spot where no one could hear the screams of the two young women. The prosecution claimed, with evidence to support, that Schaefer's actions were similar to those he carried out with Nancy Trotter and Paula Sue Wells. Schaefer bound Georgia and Susan, forced them over beside the tall trees where he tied a noose around their necks and tied the other end to the overhanging branches. The prosecution claimed that Schaefer then tortured the girls before ultimately killing them, dismembering their bodies, and scattering their remains in shallow graves. During the investigation, authorities searched the property of Doris Schaefer, Gerard's mother. The evidence collected at this location would prove to be paramount to the prosecution's case. Before Schaefer reported to the courthouse to begin serving his sentence in regard to the Trotter-Wells case, he was able to move all of his belongings to his mother's house. Although Schaefer got a huge win when the judge allowed him six months of freedom, his actions during this time would come back to haunt him. At Doris Schaefer's house, authorities found disturbing items that could be directly connected to Georgia Jessup and Susan Place. Although the prosecution did not have a confession from Schaefer, the items found at his mother's house would be the next best thing. Among the unsettling items found at Schaefer's mother's house were writings that seemed to be accounts of detailed tortures, rapes, and murders of women. In these writings, Schaefer regularly referred to the women as whores and sluts. These writings also seem to have disturbing similarities, each containing references to nooses as a means of torture and dismembering bodies with a machete. Even more unnerving was the discovery of what appeared to be memorabilia that could be connected to multiple women, more than just Georgia Jessup and Susan Place. Things like jewelry, diaries, and even teeth were found within his possessions. Though they could not connect the items with any crimes at the time, it was obvious to authorities that they were dealing with someone deeply disturbed and sadistic. In presenting these findings to the court, the prosecution was able to establish that Schaefer had fantasies of killing women, giving him a motive that would later compel him to torture and murder Georgia and Susan. Investigators testified for the prosecution recounting their interaction with Schaefer's second wife, 
once he became a suspect. According to authorities, when Teresa Dean was asked if she had been given any gifts in the months leading up to Schaefer's jail time, she showed them a purse that she had been gifted. The purse was leather with distinct designs on the front. Teresa told the authorities that her husband had surprised her with the purse a couple of months before he reported for his sentence. Investigators seized the purse, declaring it as evidence, and told Teresa they would be back in touch with her soon. Before they left, however, Teresa wanted to get something else off of her chest. She admitted to investigators that once the bodies of the two girls were found, her husband told her to get rid of the purse. It was now obvious to her why he would make that odd request. Investigators took the purse to the mothers of Georgia Jessup and Susan Place. Georgia's mother confirmed that the purse belonged to her daughter and that she was carrying it on the day she went missing. With this evidence, the prosecution was able to directly connect Schaefer to one of the murder victims. The prosecution also presented the jury with the striking similarities between the murders of Georgia and Susan and the crime for which Schaefer was currently incarcerated. Among the similarities was the fact that the bodies of Georgia and Susan were found with bindings still around their arms, as well as evidence of nooses having been tied around their necks and tied to nearby tree limbs that were situated above exposed mangrove tree roots. The prosecution recounted for the jury that this was the same exact scenario that Nancy Trotter and Paula Sue Wells reported to police after escaping from Schaefer. The similarities were stunning, with the only difference being the one major mistake Schaefer made, leaving Nancy and Paula Sue alone, giving them time to escape and survive the terrifying ordeal. Both Georgia and Susan's mothers testified about their actions after their daughters went missing. They recounted for the court their self-investigation and how they ended up at the apartment of Gerard Schaefer, known to them at the time as Jerry Shepard. They were asked about details of the day their daughters were picked up by Schaefer, what the car looked like, if he had anything inside the vehicle, and other details. The mother's testimony was disputed by the defense, who claimed that the details given in their testimony were inaccurate and contradictory. The prosecution, however, was able to discredit the defense's claim and show the mother's testimony to be credible. The defense also disputed the claim that the incriminating objects found at Schaefer's mother's home belonged to him. According to the defense team, the room where Schaefer stored his belongings was used as a storage room by a number of family members and even neighbors. Therefore, the defense argued, it could not be directly and solely attributed to the defendant. To counter this claim, the prosecution called family members to the stand, who testified that items found in Doris Schaefer's house did in fact belong solely to Gerard Schaefer. Because the defense could not use an insanity plea, their strategy was simply to find ways to discredit all evidence and eyewitness testimony presented by the state to create reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury. After both sides had presented their case, the jury was sent off to deliberate. After a fairly quick deliberation, the jury unanimously found Gerard John Schaefer guilty on two counts of murder in the first degree. Given the brutality of the crimes, 
the judge sentenced Schaefer to the maximum allowed sentence of two consecutive life terms. Court reporters recalled how Schaefer sat through the majority of his trial with a half-smile on his face, one that was present as he was being sentenced and one that remained as he was being escorted out of the courtroom. After the trial concluded, Schaefer still maintained his innocence and added that he was the fall man for a cover-up. Though the trial was over, the investigation into Schaefer was not. Based on the items uncovered at his mother's house, it was apparent that Schaefer was involved in much more than the crimes for which he had been convicted. On paper, Schaefer only has two murder convictions. That said, the evidence collected connected him to at least seven other women who had disappeared in Florida within the six months' time frame that Schaefer was free. Items such as lockets, brooches, IDs, and other personal items were discovered, none of which belonged to any member of the Schaefer family. Investigators, dedicated to getting justice for other potential victims, spent their days attempting to connect the evidence to crimes they were sure that Schaefer had committed. Investigators continued going through the disturbing writings he left behind, in which he described torturing, raping, and murdering women. When confronted with these writings, Schaefer contended that they were only fiction and nothing more. Investigators felt strongly that these were not fictional writings. They were true writings that chronicled the twisted urges that Schaefer carried out. Initially, the seeming trophies that Schaefer collected could only be connected to seven other women. Law enforcement agencies from neighboring counties began calling to find out if they could connect their missing persons cases to Schaefer. Quickly, the number of women connected to him grew from seven to over 35. Though only ever charged for two murders, Gerard Schaefer became known later as Florida's first serial killer. Soon after being sentenced to two consecutive life terms, Teresa Dean, Schaefer's second wife, filed for divorce. He signed the papers without question. Interestingly, Teresa was represented in the divorce trial by her soon-to-be ex-husband's defense attorney, Elton Schwartz. By the time the divorce was finalized, it was reported that Elton and Teresa were in a relationship. The two would eventually get married. While in prison, Schaefer received a letter from someone he had known in his younger years. Sandra London, a fiction writer, reached out to Schaefer to ask if he would be interested in speaking with her. He agreed, and Sandra paid him a visit in prison. While Sandra and Schaefer were in high school, they dated for a couple of years. Though they had not seen each other in a long time, the two seemed to fall back into a level of comfort with one another quickly. Regarding their relationship, Sandra recalled Schaefer being a normal boy, maybe a little quiet and withdrawn in crowded places, but good to her in the beginning. She also recalled, however, instances of misogyny, extreme anger, and hatred toward women, which was unsettling to her. She remembered that Schaefer apparently had two ways of categorizing women. They were either sluts and whores, or they were pure and innocent. If a woman was pure and innocent, he would treat her with respect and dignity. 
However, if he regarded the woman as a slut or a whore, Schaefer harbored extreme contempt and hatred for that woman. Sandra recalled one such instance from her high school years. She remembered that Schaefer had a neighbor who he hated. He apparently told Sandra that his neighbor, a young woman named Lee Hainline, was a slut. He told her that she would change her clothes in front of the window, openly taunting him and making him angry. Sandra, who had witnessed Lee changing before, argued that the girl was simply unaware or didn't think anyone could see her. Schaefer pushed back and said that what Lee was doing was intentional and evil. Though she took his comments as bizarre, Sandra didn't think anything further of his reaction to Lee. That is until Lee went missing a couple of years later. In 1969, Lee Hainline was a young college graduate and a newlywed when she went missing. Authorities spent months trying to figure out what happened to her, but the case went cold and it was assumed that she had just run away from her new life. Her case, however, was reopened when an item belonging to her was found in possession of Gerard Schaefer, a golden locket with her name inscribed in the opening one that her husband reported she wore daily, was found in the midst of items stored at Schaefer's mother's house. In 1978, Lee's body was finally found. However, it was not able to be identified until 2004, when technology had advanced. Schaefer was never charged in Lee's death, though he is a top suspect. Though the evidence connecting him to Lee's murder is circumstantial, if what authorities suspect is true, and Schaefer is responsible for her death, this would mean that he was a murderer long before anyone suspected him. In fact, it would mean that Schaefer was a murderer at the time he became a police officer. Sandra continued speaking with Schaefer regularly, and she quickly became a person in which he confided. Just as was found in his mother's home, while in prison, Schaefer continued writing graphic and gruesome tales of murder and torture. He would share his disturbing depictions with Sandra, who collected them and later released them in a self-published book titled Killer Fiction. These writings had oddly specific details, which authorities would pore over to find out if there was anything they could connect to Schaefer with women who had gone missing. It seemed, however, that Schaefer knew his writings would be closely analyzed, so any detail that could connect him to a specific victim was omitted. Although he always maintained his writings were fictional, authorities continued to analyze them in case he slipped up and revealed a detail that could connect him to the disappearance of the 30 or more women to which investigators believed he was connected. Sandra recalled how confident Schaefer was during their interactions. He was assured that he could never be connected to any other crime, and he continuously taunted both the authorities and her. Sandra said that at times, he would admit to dozens of murders, and other times, he would say that he was being framed and that he was completely innocent. Sandra saved the letter Schaefer wrote to her. One letter in particular has him estimating the number of murders he committed. Though he is only thought to be connected to about 35 murders, Schaefer wrote to Sandra that he believes the number of deaths for which he was responsible 
was closer to 85 to 110. This letter, however, was followed up by another letter that contended his complete innocence. Schaefer seemed to enjoy going back and forth and wanted to keep everyone guessing as to his alleged crimes. Despite this back and forth, Schaefer continually bombarded Sandra with hundreds of pages of writings, most of which laid out gruesome and graphic stories of harming women. Schaefer knew that Sandra was a writer and he was desperate to have his name be known. He allowed her to publish his writings and continuously supplied her with more. In fact, Schaefer gave Sandra so much material that she eventually published a second book. There have been multiple books and articles published about Gerard Schaefer. Author Michael Newton described him in his book as an overweight and unattractive serial killer targeting women who were much weaker than him just to make himself feel stronger. These words must have struck a chord with Schaefer because he filed a libel and discrimination suit against Newton after his book was published. Schaefer also filed suits against other writers, including Sandra London, after they had a falling out. The convicted murderer's suits never went anywhere, as each case was dropped or dismissed. In prison, Schaefer was not good at making friends. He was cocky and overconfident, and likely ill-regarded by inmates as he was once a police officer. There was one incident in particular that put Schaefer in a great deal of danger. There are multiple accounts regarding how Schaefer apparently upset his cellmate, Vincent Rivera. One story is that Schaefer was acting as an informant in the prison and that he reported Rivera for a minor infraction. Another version of the story contends that Schaefer simply took two cups of hot water instead of one cup of hot water. Yet another account of the incident is that Schaefer bragged about his crimes repeatedly and talked about how he got away with almost all of them, which disgusted and angered those around him. Whatever the true version of the story was, it was decided that an inmate who was a prison lifer should take care of Schaefer. On the evening of December 3rd of 1995, Gerard Schaefer was found murdered in his cell. He had been stabbed over 40 times, with the majority of the wounds being found on his eyes and in his mouth. The scene was gruesome, and the murder was very personal. The bones surrounding Schaefer's eyes had been fractured, and he suffered six broken ribs. Vincent Rivera was convicted of murdering Schaefer, and 53 years was added to his life sentence. Rivera was not at all remorseful about what he had done. At the time of his death, there were multiple murder charges that were close to being brought against Schaefer. In hopes of figuring out exactly what happened to these women and where their bodies could be found, authorities were planning on confronting Schaefer with their evidence. Unfortunately for the victims and their families, it seems as though the secrets of these women's deaths may have died with Gerard Schaefer. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I want to thank Kelsey S. and Andrea B. for becoming Patreon supporters of the show. If you would like exclusive bonus content and Murderish merch, head over to Murderish.com, where there's a link to sign up to become a Patreon supporter. 
On the website, you can learn more about the podcast and me and buy Murderish t-shirts and other merch. That's Murderish.com. Let's get to know each other better. Join the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we talk about cases and other things. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about the show. You can also write a review for the podcast in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanan of Audio Editing Solutions. Music by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgman. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources. Stick around after the music if you'd like to hear a list of the sources for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include writings by Juan Ignacio Blanco on Murderpedia.org, an article in the Palm Beach Post dated May 20th, 1973 by Dick Donovan, a 2016 article in TrueCrimeCases.blogspot.com, a March 4th, 2020 article at Alcatron.com, an article by Jamie Abdo and Scott Glover dated October 3rd of 2018 at www.sun-sentinel.com. An article by Kathy Grossman dated September 26th of 1973 in the Miami Herald. Another article by Kathy Grossman in the Miami Herald dated September 20th of 1973. An article in the Miami Herald dated November 22nd of 1973 by Ron Simpson. A 2018 video at youtube.com directed by Robin Fox and Bill Thomas. A Tyler Treadway article at tcpalm.com. 